Polling done in 2020 in the UK shows that climate can transcend political boundaries and unite us in hope. The vast majority of people across all political persuasions agree that climate is a real and present danger and believe that the changes required are an opportunity to create meaningful work. Concern is not confined to those on the left or the better off. It goes deep and wide across our country. But the same polling tells us that if the burden of change falls disproportionately on particular groups of people, including those least able to afford it, then it will become a source of division, not unity. and welcome back to the Vintage Books podcast. I'm Lena Norms and today I'm really excited to share a new episode with you featuring a special extract from the audiobook of Go Big, How to Fix Our World by Ed Miliband. In his award-winning podcast, Reasons to be Cheerful, Ed Miliband has captured the imagination of millions by investigating how these schemes came about and why they work. So in Go Big, He shows that a different world is entirely possible and how to get there by combining the best and most ambitious of these solutions on a very large scale. We just need to know where to look and have the courage to think big. We hope you enjoy this audio extract. Chapter one, the end of the world. It's the 19th of December, 2009. I'm standing in a hotel room in Copenhagen in my pants, getting ready to go to bed for the first time in 48 hours. Those who know a little about me may not be surprised to learn that I haven't been on a two-day Nordic bender, but I'm attending the UN climate talks as a UK climate change secretary. My phone rings as I'm about to finally get some sleep. It is Pete Betts, the lead negotiator for my department. The agreement is going down the pan. Too many countries are objecting. You better come and try and do something. I reacted with horror. The high-profile summit was already a fiasco, dogged by arguments between developing and developed countries about who should bear the burden of tackling the climate crisis, whether the world's ambition was remotely adequate and whether countries could be legally bound to act. But the one thing that seemed to have been salvaged was a short three-page agreement with some basic commitments including for the first time in an international agreement, a commitment to seek to keep global warming below 2 degrees centigrade. This was in no small part due to the determination, cajoling and sheer bloody-mindedness of the UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown, who in the chaos of bitter recriminations that had begun before the summit was even over, had effectively taken control of it and stayed up all night to get the basic agreement negotiating with a rag bag of heads of state and perplexed junior ministers from assorted countries. His parting words to me as he left for London the next morning were something like, OK, at least we've got this. Don't screw it up now. His words rang in my ears as I got dressed and raced out of the hotel back to the conference centre in a blind panic. Many poorer countries were objecting to the inadequacy of the agreement. The chair of the powerful G77 block of developing countries, 
a Sudanese diplomat called Lumumba Diapeng, had even compared the draft summit conclusions to the Holocaust. He said, This is asking Africa to sign a suicide pact, an incineration pact, in order to maintain the economic dependence of a few countries. It's a solution based on values that funneled 6 million people in Europe into furnaces. My grandfather and other family members died at the hands of the Nazis. I was sleepless and outraged. Speaking from the United States microphone because the UK's was on the blink, I attacked the disgusting comparison and the idea that because the summit hadn't done enough, which I admitted it hadn't, we shouldn't agree anything at all. I appealed to the delegates not to leave empty-handed. After more haggling, the agreement was rescued, sort of, but it didn't really change the impression that the world had comprehensively failed to grasp the scale and nature of the climate crisis. As people reflected on the outcome of the summit in the weeks and months afterwards, they looked for different explanations. Blame the Danish hosts. Blame the US for not having done enough to tackle the problem. Or, as I did at the time, blame the Chinese government, who had their own objections to the agreement. But the more I reflected on it, the more I concluded that the failure was a symptom of a much deeper problem. The shadow of global injustice in which the negotiations were conducted. The poorer countries were outraged that the rich nations had essentially grown rich by using up the carbon resources of the world, creating a world with massive disparities of income and wealth, and were now denying the same opportunity to them. Much has changed since the Copenhagen summit in terms of the world's willingness to act, but we are still not doing nearly enough. Just before COVID-19 hit, I met up with a friend of mine, Todd Stern, who represented the United States at that summit. As we discussed what the world needed to do, he put the point graphically to me. Imagine if we knew a meteorite was heading towards Earth to wipe out parts of our land and disrupt our way of life. We would mobilise all the resources at our disposal to stop it. The problem is, we aren't. The climate crisis can no longer be mistaken for a future threat. The world has warmed by one degree centigrade since 1880, and the result has been unprecedented wildfires from Australia to California, even to the Arctic Circle, heat waves in India and continental Europe, and flooding across the world. We know that climate change is making these events far more devastating and frequent than they would otherwise be. The bad news is that there will be lots more of this in Britain and across the world if we don't get our act together fast. The Paris Climate Accord of 2015 represented a great step forward from Copenhagen, establishing a global target to limit warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade rather than 2. But there is a problem. When you look at the pledges made at Paris, they actually amount to something approaching 3 degrees centigrade. If that were to happen, the best evidence suggests that coastal cities will be threatened, hundreds of millions more people may face food and water stress, 99% of coral reefs will disappear, and dangerous heat waves are likely for much of the world's population. To have a chance of keeping global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees centigrade, we have to cut emissions by around half in the next decade. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which provides expert advice to governments on these matters, tells us that we now have less than 10 years to attack the problem 
in a way that no country anywhere in the world has yet truly managed. To have a chance of keeping global warming to no more than 1.5 degrees, we have to cut emissions by 45% in the next decade. So the decisions we make in the next 10 years will have the most profound implications for generations to come about the world we inhabit, our quality of life, and indeed, our chances of renewing the social contract. If you want to know why this is the first chapter of this book, the preceding paragraph pretty much sums it up. And the reason for telling the story of Copenhagen is that it goes to the heart of the argument of this chapter. I believe there is a particular character to the solutions we need. If we treat the climate crisis as a technical or technological problem to be solved and think we can do so while leaving other injustices in place without renewing the social contract in its broadest sense, we will fail. That is true globally and it is true at home. First of all, it is just wrong to believe that we should undertake this massive economic and social transformation, reconstructing the way we live, and yet reproduce the deep injustices and inequality that scar our country and world. It would amount to remaking the high-carbon, unjust world as the zero-carbon, unjust world. Second, as I will explain, we won't bring people with us if we try to tackle the climate crisis without addressing these structural injustices. Every time I hear the facts about the climate threat, I ask myself why non-pandemic times averting this disaster wasn't the number one issue on everyone's agenda every day of every week of every month in every country of the world. What has been holding us back? The answer is that the climate threat which until recent years has felt pretty distant in countries like the UK, clashes directly with the normal rhythm of politics and the more immediate injustices so many people face in their lives. Low wages, insecure work, uncertain prospects for their children, a rickety NHS, the housing crisis. If you're worried about getting to the end of the week, the end of the world seems a distant prospect. That's why the climate disaster is the ultimate challenge for politics. Even now, the full effects of actions we take in mitigating global warming won't be felt for a generation or two or three or more. And yet the time horizon of politicians and the public is the here and now. There is also the danger that meeting concerns about the end of the world is seen to actually conflict with meeting concerns about the end of the week, pursued by people who can afford to do so at the expense of those who can't. Indeed, there are people who deny the climate crisis and portray it this way. When President Trump presented his plan to pull out of the Paris Agreement in 2017, he framed the action as a defence of America's industrial workers in the face of global elites. I was elected to represent the citizens of Pittsburgh, not Paris. Other forces that stand in the way of the change we need are also a product of our unequal world. Ever since the Industrial Revolution, economies such as the UK's have grown thanks to a model that relies on fossil fuels, coal, oil and gas. The climate challenge asks us to abandon this 300-year model of economic growth. This is an immense transition in itself, but it also faces a set of hugely powerful vested interests. Just 100 oil, gas and other fossil fuel firms are ultimately responsible 
for an astonishing 71% of industrial emissions over the last three decades. And many are fighting tooth and nail to carry on with business as usual. But it is not just the fossil fuel companies. We have built a whole financial and economic structure based on investment in these companies. And the forces stopping us breaking out of that cycle are perhaps even stronger. In chapter 18, we will look at ways to take these forces on. And there are reasons to be hopeful. But we should be under no illusions about the scale of the task. People in positions of power need also to look at themselves. The way we have campaigned for action has not helped. For those concerned about climate issues, economic and social concerns have too often been seen as separate or taken for granted. If it's green, it must be fair, or so it has seemed. This is partly what has made the climate argument vulnerable to the Trumpian attack. For those working in the fossil fuel industries, or in manufacturing reliant on those fuels, from the automotive to the steel sector, the threat of dislocation and change is real. Unless we put justice for these workers at the centre of our vision, the climate case will lose support, and for good reason. On the other hand, those who prioritise jobs and fairness have tended to tack the climate emergency on as an afterthought to political manifestos focused on the here and now as if it can be tackled separately, missing the existential threat that climate change poses. In fact, if we are serious about tackling the economic and social injustices we face, we cannot ignore the climate crisis. There is no route to a renewed social contract that does not involve putting the climate threat front and centre, because it threatens most those who have least, and that is as true in Britain as it is anywhere else. If we fail on climate, we will make inequality and unfairness worse. I know this firsthand from the floods that hit Doncaster in late 2019, which led to thousands of families being evacuated from their homes. Some of the same families had been flooded just 12 years earlier, in 2007. What was once thought to be a one-in-a-hundred-year event has happened twice in barely a decade. Each of these families' stories is one of heartache, loss, fear, and continuing anxiety. But it was the most vulnerable people, often living in homes in floodplains, some of whom didn't have insurance, who were hardest hit, and frequently had nowhere else to go. As I said in the introduction to this section, the climate crisis is also the biggest intergenerational betrayal. On current estimates, a baby born today will need to have a carbon budget of just one-eighth of someone born in 1950 if we are to avoid climate disaster. Future generations will look back at us as drunken revellers at the carbon party, who smashed up the joint and left them with a mess of epic proportions to clear up. When you stop and think about it, the way forward is rather obvious, at least in theory. If we tackle the climate crisis in a way that also tackles the other deep injustices we face, we are asking people to act not just for the sake of the future, but for the sake of now. We are speaking to their immediate concerns, uniting those worried about the end of the world with those worried about the end of the week. The good news is that there is already a big idea that seeks to do exactly this. It was conceived in the UK at the time of the financial crisis of 2007 by a group of economists and activists. 
Like a lot of people, they had the simple insight that we could match the urgency of the economic crisis with the demands of the environmental crisis by creating well-paid, worthwhile jobs to tackle both. They called it the Green New Deal. The genius of the Green New Deal idea is its recognition that the scale of the transformation we need, from how we heat our homes to the way we get around our towns and cities, to how we use our land and generate power, also demands we rethink and remake our societies. We do not try to solve the climate problem while leaving existing injustices in place. We do so by prioritising the creation of well-paid, decent jobs, by tackling poor quality housing, inadequate public transport systems, the silent killer of air pollution, and the absence of green spaces. In other words, we rebuild and renew the social contract. The Green New Deal name and notion hark back to US President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his New Deal of the 1930s. He came to office on the back of the Great Depression. As one historian put it, a quarter of the labour force was unemployed. People had lost farms, homes and small businesses. Thousands of banks had collapsed, taking with them the deposits and savings of millions of people. Starving people wandered the streets. Food riots broke out. The future of capitalism, indeed of democracy itself, appeared grim. What FDR realised was that an effective response to the crisis required breathtaking boldness and new thinking. It needed not just a change in this policy or that, but a mobilisation of all the powers of government to win what he likened to a war as if we were in fact invaded by a foreign foe. FDR certainly knew how to go big. Eight million people who would otherwise have faced the desolation of unemployment were put back to work with government investment. Those workers constructed hundreds of thousands of miles of roads, more than 100,000 public buildings and thousands of parks across the country. He even had an initiative called the Civilian Conservation Corps, which utilised three million men to plant three billion trees. This much is well known about Roosevelt's New Deal, but there was something more to it which is spoken about less. It did not just represent an emergency programme to put America back to work. FDR rewrote the social contract of America, not just giving workers a stake in the future, but also setting America on a more equal course, giving greater rights to working people and restraining the power of finance. As he put it, his aim was to supplant the old order of special privilege with a new order of things designed to benefit the great mass of our farmers, workers and businessmen. The Green New Deal had some impact in the late 2000s. But as we saw from Copenhagen, the world was not yet ready to act. And it played only a modest role in economic recovery plans after the financial crisis. In the last couple of years, however, this idea, born more than a decade ago in London, has become the dominating climate policy theme in American politics, supported by a grassroots movement and much of the Democratic Party. The concept has become central to the US debate, thanks in large part to the efforts of Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, an insurgent Democratic politician elected in 2018. 
You may have heard of her. She has a gazillion Twitter followers and is a bona fide political rock star. But I want to tell you about someone else, whom you probably won't have heard of, but has played a pivotal role in fleshing out what the Green New Deal idea should mean in practice. Rihanna Gunwright is an African-American, born on the south side of Chicago. She came to climate not through a traditional environmental route. In fact, as a health policy analyst working with marginalised communities, her attitude towards the climate crisis was initially dismissive. I just felt like other people are already doing that work, she said. They don't need me. But then she started seeing the vulnerability of the poor to the climate threat. She discovered that 70% of African Americans live near coal-fired power plants and recalled her own experience of asthma growing up near one herself. She realised that the climate threat was a social justice issue and that the profound changes our societies will have to undergo means confronting the way they are run now and considering how they could be run in a more just way. At this point, a critic might ask, why make the climate crisis even harder to tackle by loading onto its shoulders all the injustices and inequalities of our world? Won't that make it harder to win allies and more difficult to advance? The resounding answer is that the opposite is true. Polling done in 2020 in the UK shows that climate can transcend political boundaries and unite us in hope. The vast majority of people across all political persuasions agree that climate is a real and present danger and believe that the changes required are an opportunity to create meaningful work. Concern is not confined to those on the left or the better off. It goes deep and wide across our country. But the same polling tells us that if the burden of change falls disproportionately on particular groups of people, including those least able to afford it, then it will become a source of division, not unity. We also just cannot tell people that the deep injustices they face in their lives will have to wait for decades because the climate challenge takes precedence. That would be wrong, and just as important, it won't work. We can only build the necessary coalition if we tackle both the climate crisis and inequality together. The transformation required in the UK, as in every country, is huge. We must change the way we heat nearly 30 million homes, take tens of millions of petrol and diesel cars off the road, alter the way we use our land and the manner in which we power our country. Alongside this massive and complex task, we also face the economic fallout from COVID. Either on its own demands Roosevelt-scale ambition, but together, the case for a bold response is even clearer. If this became a national mission, backed with appropriate government resources, it could create fulfilling work for hundreds of thousands of people. For example, about 15% of total greenhouse gas emissions in the UK come from the way we heat our homes. We have made little progress in changing things over the last decade, so there is a huge job to be done here. First insulating and upgrading the buildings so we stop wasting so much energy, and then overseeing the transition from natural gas or oil to zero-carbon sources of power. To do this will require at least 200,000 additional jobs over the next three decades. This is something to get really excited about. Imagine a zero-carbon army going from house to house, street by street, neighbourhood by neighbourhood, to insulate homes and help people change the way they heat them. Just as with FDR's programme, people would have the sense of being part of a shared mission for the country, giving us the greenest homes in the world.
An inspiring example of this on a small scale is Retrofit Get In, a cooperative in Manchester owned and run by its workers, which is employing stagehands, technicians and joiners who have lost their jobs in theatre during the pandemic to insulate homes. It turns out their skills are eminently transferable. Of course, we want these workers to be able to get their jobs back in the theatre, but this illustrates the principle and points the way to what could be done with an equivalent scheme on a national scale. As we face this transition, those who run the fossil fuel industry do not merit our support. But those who work in it, and all other industries that underpin our high-carbon economy, deserve all the support we can possibly muster. There are an estimated 300,000 jobs in the UK dependent on the oil and gas sector alone, concentrated in particular areas of the country. And these jobs tend to be decently paid with good pensions and unionised workforces. Unless we handle the change well, we will let down entire communities and fail to bring people with us. The problem is that in the UK, we haven't been doing enough to create equivalent jobs, even in areas where we appear to be doing well on green issues, like offshore wind. Over the last two decades, successive governments have made great strides in turning the UK into a global leader in offshore wind generation. By first mandating energy suppliers to include renewables, and more recently by guaranteeing the offshore wind industry a price for the power it produces, the government has played a crucial role in its success. But that success has been a narrow one. Bifab is a company based in Fife in Scotland, barely 10 miles from what will be Scotland's largest offshore wind farm, which will supply power to hundreds of thousands of Scottish homes. Bifab has spent most of its history building oil and gas platforms, but more recently has been pitching to build platforms for the wind turbines planned off Scotland's coasts. But those wind farms will not be built by Bifab, because in 2020, it went into administration. In April 2021, a deal was struck to use its facilities to manufacture eight platforms, but it still leaves the vast majority manufactured in Indonesia, the UAE and China, and shipped thousands of miles to reach us. Bifab is a parable for a failure to build a domestic wind industry. It needn't be this way. Just across the North Sea, Denmark has shown that with a proper industrial policy that uses the power of government for investment, alongside the private sector, you can compete on the basis of high standards, with good wages, and still create green jobs. I return to the issue of industrial policy in Chapter 5. A planned transition means creating alternative employment and also giving the best help to people at risk of unemployment. In 2012, coal miners in Spain undertook a 457-kilometre Marcha Negra, Black March, protesting against the reduction of subsidies by the national government. In 2018, a new government negotiated a Just Transition Agreement to invest €250 million Euros in mining communities. This involves funding early retirement for older workers, retraining schemes for younger employees, and crucially, developing renewable energy improving energy efficiency, and investing in and developing new industries. The government and unions have recently struck a similar deal for regions and workers affected by the closure of thermal power plants. We need to ensure the transition is fair, not just for workers, but for all citizens. As a country, the UK is now committed to phasing out new petrol and diesel cars by 2030. But at the moment, electric cars are still relatively expensive. If those on lower incomes lose out, a backlash will occur. Electric cars will soon be cheaper than petrol and diesel cars over their lifetime. 
but the upfront costs will remain higher. We need to work out how we make them affordable. Some have suggested zero-interest government loans, for example, and not just for those on the highest incomes. But transport also offers an example of how replacing a current system with a lower carbon alternative is not enough. The carbon cost of producing electric cars means we cannot simply replace every petrol and diesel car with an electric one. So public transport will assume greater importance. But from the point of view of our social contract, there are deep inequalities that will need to be addressed if we are to unite around the transition. There is a long-standing problem with our privately run rail system, characterised by its tendency to privatise profits when times are good and socialise its losses to the taxpayer when the going gets tough, as has happened once again during the pandemic. Bus services outside London are often infrequent, expensive and unreliable. To go over to a lower carbon transport system while leaving these inadequate services in place and not reimagining our transport system so that people have proper alternatives to car use, a subject I return to in Chapter 10, would be both unjust and doomed to fail. What is true of transport is true more generally. We must take the opportunity to think what a renewed social contract should offer people in the round. Access to green spaces, clean air, a safe warm home, the subject of the next chapter, and affordable energy bills. There are big issues to consider, including the important role of democratic public ownership in energy and how we distribute fairly the benefits and burdens of the transition. This is just a small preview of the action required. But the principle that unites it all is that every policy and every decision aimed at going green must tackle the deep inequalities and injustices of our country too. If you're wondering how much all this would cost, the answer is far less than you might think. The government's independent climate advisors at the Climate Change Committee estimate the net costs are less than 1% of our national income each year, about £20 billion in today's money. That's partly because going green may cost us at the outset, but it leads to savings in the longer term. As mentioned, the cost of an electric car over its lifetime will soon be less than those of a petrol and diesel car. And onshore wind is now the cheapest fuel at our disposal. In any case, 1% of national income seems a small price to pay to prevent climate disaster and create a better life for people. Moreover, creating a better life for people isn't just the right and necessary thing to do. It is what will inspire people to act. In his famous speech at the March on Washington in 1963, Martin Luther King declared, I have a dream. He didn't say, I have a nightmare. King understood the motivation of hope and the coalition it could build around a positive vision of an integrated, tolerant, equal America. Those who care about the climate emergency, me included, have been good at talking about the nightmare. But we have a dream too. The promise of the Green New Deal is not just to tackle the climate crisis. It is also to create better lives, good jobs, high-quality public transport, affordable energy and a decent home. That is a cause worth fighting for in the here and now. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Books podcast. We really hope you enjoyed the episode. 
You can also tune into the podcast Cheerful Book Club, a book club for optimists presented by Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd, which is an amazing conversation about the biggest ideas in non-fiction books brought to you by Vintage. There's a link in the episode description as well if you'd like to check it out. Have you learned anything fascinating from a non-fiction book recently? We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at Vintage Books on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Thanks again and until next time, read boldly and think differently. Thank you.